Good evening. Um, Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. That is Romans 6, 1 through 14. And tonight, by God's grace, I will be preaching on the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, Tonight, uh, we will be considering how God, by His gracious working in us, has set us free from sin through our union with Christ. And having set us free from the power of sin, God has enabled us to put sin to death in our own lives and grow in holiness and obedience to Him. That's where we're going, sanctification. This is our last service as Revolution Church. This is the last sermon I will ever preach as a pastor at Revolution Church. And that's a strange feeling. Right, me and Steve were talking about that just a few minutes ago. It's a weird feeling. Right? We've been around for 13 years. We planted in August of 2008. I was not a Christian then. <laughs> right? I, I'm not the first pastor here. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the second teaching pastor here. Um, this is it's an odd feeling that uh, while we're the same church, we're taking on a new identity of sorts. It's weird, but it's good. Right? But a lot has happened in 13 years. We have changed a lot. A lot of you, I think there's only four of us that have been here since somewhere between 2008 and 2011. I think everyone else has come after that point. There's only four of us that have been here really for the long haul. Um, We've grown a lot. And when I think about the history of this congregation since 2008, one word especially comes to my mind. Sanctification. I mean, granted, grace would be like the number one, right? But sanctification is a work of God's grace in his people. It's a gracious working of God. So I get both whenever I say sanctification. God has grown us. And when I say that, I mean that God has worked in us and made us more holy over the years. He has made us more reverent toward him. He's purified our doctrine one step at a time. He's purified our practice And our worship, he's taught us more and more to individually live in greater obedience to him. And while we still aren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, we were really so horribly immature in past years as a congregation. Let me give you some examples uh, in case you didn't know because you were not here or in case you have forgotten if you were here. Uh, one, our, our church was started in angst and immaturity. Our, our initial church slogan was finally, church that doesn't suck. 2008, we had it on t-shirts. I think there may have been a banner with it at one point. We, that was on our stuff. That was our phrase. Finally, church that doesn't suck. And as you can guess, <clears throat> that implies that all the other churches around us were awful. Like all of them. If there's finally, we're the one that doesn't suck, then that means all the other ones that existed before us were awful. And listen, while there, while there were and are many bad and even false churches in our area, that statement was so arrogant and childish to assume that we're the only ones doing it right. Whenever there are other gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches in our area. So we started out with no desire whatsoever to cooperate with anybody at all. And that was immature and sinful. Not only did we have a bad attitude, And almost to a man, we all had a bad attitude whenever it came to all the other churches 
in our area, almost to a man. Not only did we have a bad attitude, but our worship services were full of irreverence and worldly wisdom. There were times when we would start services with secular music that our pastors at the time thought really fit with what was going to be preached and would really appeal to unbelievers who were visiting with us. An example of this, during a, a a series going through the Song of Solomon, the worship band played a cover of Kings of Leon's Sex on Fire to begin our church service. Yeah, that happened. That was a thing. Another time we played a music video, Kanye West, Jesus Walks. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, More than that, there would be movie and TV clips played during the sermons for humor and shock value. Uh, There'd be family guy scenes played. Uh, Occasionally a still frame photo shot from South Park would be thrown up. Um, Things like that, movie clips. Uh, The lights were always turned off during the singing portion of our service. As some of you have been here for that, we've changed that in recent years. Uh, And it was so as to create some kind of an emotional atmosphere, right? To to produce some kind of emotional experience. And the general tone of the services was not one of, of worshiping the almighty Lord of all, but it was rather a casual, fun, flippant time. Even to the point where some of the men, for a joke, wore dresses to church that we found at a churchyard sale. Yeah, no reverence. But not just in the worship services, there was also a general immaturity and sinful attitude toward biblical church organization. We once handed out, get ready, non-member member cards. A non-member membership card. And we did that because we mocked the idea that a congregation was supposed to have a defined membership. We mocked that idea. And, and we also, until about six years ago, never had a written statement of faith. We never had a church constitution or the biblical church polity of congregationalism. There were no church meetings. There was no membership. There was no selecting your officers in your church. There was no church discipline, right? None of that existed. We thought we knew better than the word of God on these issues. So we intentionally mocked any kind of formal biblical principles of organization. More than that, there was often a cliquishness to our congregation. We were not very accepting of people who we deemed to be outsiders. Let me define that. If you were some kind of punk rock kid or a drug addict or something, you were not an outsider to us. Come on in. But if you were a churchy, uh, stereotypical evangelical Christian, get away from us. We don't want anything to do with you. That was, that's, that's what I mean by outsider. Someone who who grew up in another, maybe a more legalistic church in our area. We didn't want anything to do with you. And it was often hard for new people to make friends and get in with us. I remember a woman who was, a dear, she's a dear friend of mine still. She was dating a man uh, who was very much in at our church. And she was from a very legalistic congregation in our area. And because of who she was and what church she went to, she was basically shunned by everybody in this church. Again, Only like four of us were here back then. But I'm telling you where we were. She was basically shunned. She would stay after service often, hoping that someone would talk to her, but we would ignore her. Um, And there were times where we've learned since then she would leave the church crying because nobody would talk to her for weeks. No one would even acknowledge that she was there. We were cliquish. Even more than that, there was a general attitude of licentiousness in our church. What I mean by that is most of us did not take holiness very seriously at all. 
We thought that since we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we understood that very well. We thought that since we were saved by faith alone and not by anything that we do, that we could live however we wanted. In our individual lives, we often did not look much different from the world. We just didn't. We were still entertained by all the same things. We drew no lines in the sand. We had the same sense of humor to a T. We did the same exact activities and honestly wavered on the hard things in Scripture whenever the world would challenge us. It wasn't uncommon to occasionally hear of somebody in the church getting drunk. Um, Some of us even thought that it was only a sin to be an alcoholic, but that getting drunk occasionally was acceptable for a Christian. There were also a ton of men who were habitual pornography watchers who honestly did not seem to take killing that sin very seriously at the time. And from time to time, you would even hear stories of people in our church fornicating with one another repeatedly. Now, hear me, many of these people were actually Christians. Right? Like, I know them. They're still following Christ to this day. But man, we were the Corinthians. Revolution was the first church of Corinth. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious. Like, first Corinthians, many parts of it could have been written to us, straight from the apostle. We were like the, uh, the church of Corinth. Many of us did not take obedience or holiness seriously for quite a while. And if someone, here's the kicker, if someone questioned us about holiness or called us to stop being worldly, we would accuse them of legalism and tell them that they did not understand the gospel of grace. The most hated preacher amongst those of us who watched Reformed preachers was Paul Washer. Those of us who watched him thought that Paul Washer was the biggest legalist you've ever met. Some of you guys have listened to him. Go home and listen to him. He preaches about holiness hard. Sometimes maybe a little bit too hard. (laughs) But we all hated his guts because we thought he was a legalist. He's not, but we thought that he was. You couldn't call us to repentance without us accusing you of not understanding the gospel. Time will not permit me to continue to give more examples, but I think you get the point. And those of us who have been around for years remember these times with shame. We, we kind of chuckle now because it's like, it's like a nervous, awkward, like I can't believe that we would do that. It's shameful. But God has been very gracious. The, the infinite patience that God has had with this congregation. He's been so kind. He has been so kind. And he's grown us. But how did that happen? Well, the answer is sanctification. God grew us each individually. And as I just said, he did so patiently. As the Apostle Paul says, from one degree of glory to the next. And as he worked in us, we responded to his work and pursued more and more righteousness. And as that happened individually, we grew more mature as a congregation. And that's what happens to every believer. Sanctification. This is what happens to all of us. It is a necessary result of true faith in Christ. Those who have been justified by faith alone will inevitably grow in holiness. That's how God has designed this whole business of salvation. There is not a single justified person who has not also been sanctified and is also being sanctified. It's all connected. We are not only saved from the penalty of our sins, but we are saved from the dominion and power of sin so that we can grow to reflect more and more who God is and how we live. So then, in light of our history, 
where we're at now and where we're heading by God's grace, I thought it was fitting to preach this final sermon as Revolution Church on the doctrine of sanctification. How does it happen? How do we grow? How do we grow in holiness? And the answer might surprise some of us. God has already done something in us the moment that we were converted. God has done something marvelous to us. He has united us to Christ. And with that union with Christ comes freedom from the dominion of sin. And then, being made free, we now respond naturally to seek more and more after God and obedience to Him. Being changed by God's grace, united to Christ, freed from sin, we now reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And being made dead to sin by God's grace, now we grow in holiness. This may shock you, but this sermon is not going to be five steps to growing in holiness. That's not what I'm going to do. Right? That's what most sermons on holiness are, though, aren't they? Do this, do that, do this, do that, and you'll grow. Right? Now listen, there is a place for talking about practical steps and things that we can do to promote godliness in our life. I'm not denying that. But before we can ever consider those things, we must first consider what God has done. So the biggest focus of this sermon is going to be this. Sanctification is the result of what God has done and we grow in holiness because of the reality of his work. That's where I'm driving at. So with that said, this was a long introduction. We're going to be here for a minute. Please stand now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. The Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. 
God of all grace, please be gracious to us this evening and teach us. Grant us grace to understand your word. Grant us the grace to believe what you've said. And grant us the grace to wage war on our sin by faith in what you've done for us in Christ. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, and wills to obey. Be gracious to us, we pray. And we ask for it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, the Apostle Paul begins this chapter having just finished writing at length about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, Paul now anticipates an abuse of that doctrine. He's been explaining since the middle of chapter 3 that we are declared righteous in God's sight through faith alone in Christ alone, completely apart from any act of righteousness or obedience on our part. And in light of that, Paul knows that some are going to try to twist his teaching. And just real quick, if the gospel you preach is not liable to bad people twisting it into some form of licentiousness, then you're not preaching the same gospel that Paul preached. He preached a gospel of free grace. We should do the same. But he knew that some are going to try to twist his teaching. Some people were saying, So then, if we are justified by faith alone, apart from anything that we do, apart from any obedience to God whatsoever, then that means we can just live however we want, right? Because what we do doesn't matter because we're not saved by our works. We can just sin all we want because God's grace will be magnified and he will be shown to be extra gracious because he has forgiven us for so much, right? That's how this works, right, Paul? That's why Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? This kind of sounds like how some of us used to think, doesn't it? But as we'll see, this is an absolute misunderstanding of what it means to have faith in Christ. Because faith in Christ has some serious consequences for the believer. Things happen when we believe upon Christ. Just as if, to steal from Paul Washer, if you were hit by a Mack truck going down the road, there would be some serious consequences for you. How much more to come into contact with the Son of God through faith? There will be some serious consequences for us. Things happen when we're united to Christ by faith. And that's why Paul answers that question in verse 1 very strongly. Verse 2, he says, by no means. Right here, the apostle is actually using the strongest negative language that is available to him in this language. It's the strongest thing he's got. And it even has a sense of shock and outrage that someone would even suggest that a believer can go on sinning rather go on living in sin after conversion. He says, absolutely not, or as the King James says, God forbid, by no means. He's saying, what are you you thinking? Right, that's absolute nonsense that anyone would ever be able to think like that. What, What do you mean we sin more so that grace may abound? That's stupid. Right, so Paul says unequivocally that those who have believed on Christ and have been justified absolutely cannot continue to live in sin. They can't do it. And then he begins to give his explanation for why that's the truth. In verse 2 he says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? How? Catch that, Christian. This is is an amazing declaration that the apostle just made about you. The we here, how how can we who died to sin, refers to all true believers. It refers to Christians. 
Everyone who has been born again by the Holy Spirit, that is, everyone who's been regenerated and brought to saving faith in Christ, that's the we here. And he says that all of us, all Christians, have died to sin. Objectively, we have died to sin. And when he says died to sin throughout this whole passage, he's referring to the fact that we are spiritually dead to the power and authority of sin. As we'll see later in the text, he means that we are no longer slaves to sin. And since we are dead to sin, Paul says, we cannot still live in it. You can't do it. You cannot live in it. Now, I want to be clear about something. Let me make some caveats here. Paul is not saying that Christians will never sin after their conversion. That's not what he's saying. He contradicts the idea that a Christian stops sinning after they become a Christian in the next chapter. Right? Chapter 7, where Paul speaks about his own struggle against remaining sin in his life as a Christian. He says, why do I do the things I don't want to do and the things that I don't want to do, I do? Why do I do that? Right? That's, that's Romans 7. Right? More, more than that, there are many texts of Scripture that instruct Christians to repent of their sin, to ask God to forgive their sins. You remember the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we... You're told, you're told by Jesus, Christian, to ask God to forgive you for your sins, right? Christians still sin, right? There are many commands for us to kill the remaining sin in our lives, right? And, and, and more texts that, that I could get to this evening in the New Testament. So, so Paul is telling us that, Paul is rather not telling us that we will never sin again. That's not his point. Rather, Paul is saying that we absolutely cannot live in sin, We cannot live in it. That is, we cannot live in an unbroken, unrepentant lifestyle of sin. Christians can and do sin after they're converted. But Paul is saying that we cannot live the same way that we lived before becoming Christians. And it's not like a moral, you can't do that. He's saying you literally can't do that because you died to sin. It's not that it's just inconsistent or you can't do that or you'll lose your salvation because Paul doesn't believe you can lose your salvation. Rather, he means you literally can't because you're dead. You're dead to sin. So there will be repentance in a Christian. There will be a hatred of sin. There will be a fight against sin. Sin will become less and less desirable to the believer. We will not be able to live at peace with our sin. Since we have died to sin, there begins, as our confession says in chapter 13, an irreconcilable war that has begun with our sin. We died to sin when we became Christians. So then, it is impossible for us to live in it. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 2. But then Paul goes on to remind us of why this is true. Verses 3 and 4. He's setting himself up to argue for it later. Verses 3 and 4. Do you not know... That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. Paul says do you not know? Do you not know? There's a rebuke here. To anyone who thinks that a Christian can continue to live in sin. Do you not know? Don't you know what your baptism pictured? That's what he's saying here. Surely you haven't forgotten your baptism. Don't you know what your baptism symbolized? Or maybe even better, don't you know what God promised you in baptism? Don't you remember? 
And he says that all of us who have been baptized were baptized into Christ Jesus. And what Paul is assuming here real quick, it's not that there's two special classes of baptized Christians and other kinds of Christians. No, Paul is assuming that every Christian has been baptized because that's the norm. Every Christian has been baptized. So he's saying here that all Christians have been spiritually immersed or baptized into Christ. You've been covered in Him. You, like, you are in Him, immersed, baptized. And this was pictured in your water baptism. Christian, your baptism is a symbol of your being put into Christ. In our baptism, maybe some of this language will make you uncomfortable, but deal with it, we're reformed. In our baptism, we were sacramentally put into Christ. Now that doesn't mean that our baptism converted us, right? We don't have the same problem that our paedo-baptist friends have, that that seems like what it would point to. Rather, we believe in believer's baptism. So we know that you were converted prior to being baptized. So this is what is signified in baptism. And what is signified in baptism is the promise of salvation through the washing away of our sin and our being immersed or united to Christ by faith. Brothers and sisters, your baptism was a sign of your union with Christ. That's why Paul says we were baptized into Christ Jesus. That's what it was a sign of. Now what does it mean? This is important. What does it mean to be united to Christ? What does it mean to be united with Christ? It means that everything that is His, with the exception of those things that are unique to Him as God, those things that are unique to His divine nature, with the exception to those things, everything that is His has become ours. That's why marriage, right? That's the great picture of Christ and His church. Why? Because when you get married, whatever was yours is now yours, right? It used to be just yours, like by yourself. No, now it's ours, right? When Through union with Christ, what is his is now ours. And everything that he did, now we did in him. If you think that sounds crazy, remember, Adam's sin is our sin because we were born what? United to Adam. We were born in Adam. Read Romans 5. Paul just went through talking about this. We were born with Adam as our representative before God. So now, through faith in Christ, we've been united to Christ. And what is His now belongs to us. Again, by faith, we have been united to Christ. And this is pictured in our baptism. What is His is now ours. Just like we are fully immersed in water at baptism after we've come to faith in Christ, so also through faith in Christ, we have been immersed into Christ himself. And with that union with Christ comes a spiritual union with his death. That's what I'm driving at here. That's where Paul's driving. I'm not preaching on baptism, right? It's there. That's there for a reason. With this union with Christ comes a spiritual union with his death. That's why the apostle says we were baptized into his death. His death at the cross is our death because we've been united to him by faith. When Jesus died then, we died with him. And as Paul goes on to say in verse 6, this means that our old self, literally our old man, the person who we were before being converted died with Christ. The old man, the old you, please hear me, the old you who was a slave to sin, the old you who hated righteousness, 
who was so bound in sin that you could not obey God and you would not either. The old you who loved sin, the old you who could not resist sin, the old you who could not do anything but sin, that person died when Jesus died on the cross. And this is true because by faith you've been united to Christ. And so his death was the death of your old self. And Paul says that we died with Christ in order that, verse 4, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We died by virtue of our union with Christ so that just like Jesus was raised to a new life in his body, we also would be raised to a new spiritual life that is not like our old life of slavery to sin. That's his point here. Christian, you have a new life. Through faith in Christ, the old you is dead. You have received a resurrection from your old spiritually dead life. You are now alive to God in Christ. And with that new life comes new abilities to resist sin and obey God. And that is why those who have come to faith in Christ cannot and will not continue to live in sin. Because we can't. It's not, again, I keep saying this, it's not just that it would be inconsistent or not consistent with, uh, with our profession or not consistent with our baptism and what it symbolizes for us to live in an unrepentant unbroken pattern of sin, Paul says it is literally not possible because you have a new life and you're not the person you used to be. That's what the apostle's saying here. Now maybe you're sitting there and you're a bit skeptical because we're all kind of a bit of rationalists, right, in our modern day. We're smarter than all the ancients, right? We're smarter than the Bible. Maybe you're asking, you know, how did I die and rise with Christ, How did that happen? I wasn't even alive when that happened. How did I die and come to new life with him? Answer, I don't know. I don't. You don't either. Right? I I don't know. Paul doesn't tell us how it happened, except to tell us that it's because of our union with Christ. So it's through our union with Christ that we've come into by faith that the old us died when he died. But apart from that, Paul doesn't care to explain how that went down. He just tells us, this is how things are now. This is what objectively happened to you. So Christian, please hear me. God himself is speaking to you now through his word. And he says that you have spiritually died with Christ at the cross. And you were spiritually raised from the dead when he rose from the dead on the third day. That's what happened. That's what happened. That's the truth, whether or not we can explain it. Please, I beg you, if you have a hard time with this... Wait till we study the Lord's Supper a little bit more. Don't take the supernatural out of your religion. Our religion is supernatural. There are things we cannot explain. Don't try to take the mystery out of Christianity. These things are just true. God has spoken. You have died, and you have been raised to newness of life through Christ. But now Paul goes on, and he goes to argue in verses 5 through 10 for what he said in verses 1 through 4. Let's read verse 5. He says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Paul's saying that if we have died with Christ, if we have been united with him in his death, 
and we have, right? It's an if and it happened. We have, then we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. And listen, though it is by virtue of our union with Christ that we will also be raised bodily on the last day, that's true. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about our bodily resurrection. He's referring to our spiritual resurrection with Christ that enables us to walk in newness of life that he's already talked about in verse 4. So that's the context here. So what he's saying is that just as certainly as we've been united with Christ in his death, we have just as certainly been given a new resurrection life since he was raised from the dead. So once again, how can we continue to live like we did before we had faith in Christ if we've been given a new life? Answer, we can't. All believers have new life, and so we live differently. Paul continues, verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul says, I like this, we know. Right? We know, Act like you knew if you didn't know. Right? We know this, Christian. We know this. There shouldn't be any doubt in our minds that what he's about to say is true. And what we know is that our old self was crucified with Christ. We know this. The old you, the old man who was a slave to sin, is dead. He's dead. The you who could not do anything but sin is dead. The old you was crucified at Calvary. Please hear me. Just as certainly as our Lord Jesus Christ was nailed to the tree, so also your old self, the you who was born into Adam and a slave to sin, was crucified with him. He's dead. Why? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. There's a purpose behind the old you being crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, what is this body of sin Paul's talking about? This is debated, but I think very simply, he's just referring to the old you, the metaphorical body, the old man that was full of sin and only sin. The body of sin is the unredeemed you, the you that loved sin. The old you was crucified with Christ so that it would be brought to nothing. And brought to nothing here means that it was rendered inoperative. It has no power. It's powerless. The old you was crucified and killed with Christ so that it would no longer have any power over you. Why? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The old you was crucified and killed with Christ so that it would no longer have any power over you so that you would be free from sin. And please hear me. Don't, we're not Wesleyans here. When I say free from sin, I don't mean that you'll never sin again. What I mean is that you are free from the authority and power of sin that once held sway over and directed the old you. And you are free from that dominion of sin because the old you is dead in Christ. Our old nature is dead in principle. It died when Christ died. And God made it so, so that we wouldn't be slaves to sin any longer once we believed in Christ. Now listen to me. We are still tempted to sin. We still succumb to sin, even. But Paul's point is not that we are sinless. 
Rather, it is that the dominion of sin, the mastery that sin once had over us in our unregenerate, unconverted state, that power and mastery and dominion and lordship that sin had over us has been broken. It's gone. Because we died with Christ so that we wouldn't be slaves anymore. There has been a definite, definitive break with the power of sin over our lives because we have definitively died in Christ. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That is, the one who has died with Christ has been set free from sin. Sin no longer has any claim whatsoever on the one who has died with Christ. If you're a believer, if you've died with Christ by virtue of union with Him by faith, then you have been set free from the authority and dominion of sin. This all sounds kind of theological and just out there. Let me illustrate this for you. If a soldier is discharged from the United States Army, he is free from the authority of the Army. Right? That man who was a soldier is not a soldier anymore. And I don't mean to disrespect veterans. I know they're like, I'm a soldier forever. I get the sentiment. I appreciate you. Thank you very much. But you're not a soldier anymore. You're just not. You're not enlisted in the United States Army anymore. The status of the soldier changed the day he was discharged. He is not the same person that he was before he was discharged. There has been a change. So now, as a free man, right, a man free from the authority of the army, if a drill sergeant approached him and demanded that he drop to the ground and begin doing push-ups, would that man have to obey him? No. I, I would say, I dare you. To do that to someone who just got discharged from the army. I got friends who are in the military. They'll fight you. That person, that man who has been discharged does not have to obey. Why? Because he's not under the authority of the army anymore. He's not under the power of the army anymore. Now if he wants, he can get on the ground and start doing push-ups. And he might for a while. But eventually he'll realize, you know, man, I don't have to do this. I was discharged from the army, and this drill sergeant doesn't have the authority to make me do anything anymore. The former soldier has died to the army. He has died to the dominion and authority of the army. And in a much greater and much more significant way, Christian, you have died to sin. You have died to the authority and dominion of sin. Christian, this is my, it is my pleasure to tell you, if you did not know, you are free. And you don't have to obey sin any longer. You are no longer the old man who was bound and captive to sin. You are a free man in Christ Jesus. You died with Him. Now having talked about our death with Christ, Paul now switches in verses 8 through 10 to focus more on our life with him in his resurrection. He begins verse 8 much like he did in verse 5. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Again, this is a reference to a spiritual resurrection, not a bodily resurrection. We will live with him. If we died with Christ, then we also share in his resurrection that gives us a new moral and spiritual life. Paul continues this thought in verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ 
being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now I will openly admit, read any commentary on Romans, these verses are somewhat complicated. So just bear with me and I'm going to do my best to summarize what Paul's saying here. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And being raised, he will never, ever die again. Why? Because death doesn't have any dominion, any power, any authority over him any longer. Well, why? Because when Jesus died, he died to sin once and forever, never to be repeated again. Now, when Paul says that Jesus, please, please tune in here, this is, this is the best part, I think. When Paul says that Jesus died to sin, he's not saying that Jesus stopped sinning. Right? Jesus never sinned to begin with. Right? So he doesn't die to sin like, like we would say metaphorically, we died to sin, we need to die, we need to stop sinning. No, Jesus never sinned to begin with. He's perfect. What's in view here is the fact that at the cross, sin was imputed to Jesus on our behalf, and Jesus was counted a sinner in our place. And listen, when he became sin, when sin was imputed to him, Sin then had a claim on him. This might make you uncomfortable, but it's true. Sin had a claim on him whenever sin was imputed to his account. And that claim was death. For as Paul tells us later, the wages of sin is death. Where there is sin, there must be death. And so sin had a claim on Christ at the cross. The claim of death. And when Jesus died, that claim was canceled. It was canceled. Jesus died, and in his death, rendered the claim of sin, the authority that sin had over him at the cross, he rendered it null and void. When Jesus died, he broke the power of sin. His death removed the authority of sin that was over him. And then... Being raised from the dead, he will never die again. Why? Because he did away with sin. And it has no claim on him anymore. And since it has no claim on him, he can never die again. In his death, Christ cast off sin and all the authority it had over him at the cross. And being raised from the dead, never to have sin imputed to him ever again, he will never die. And since we have been united to Christ in his death and his resurrection, we will never die either. That is, we will never go back under the claim and authority of sin. Why? Because we've been united to Christ, and he will never be under the authority of sin ever again. So as long as Jesus is alive, we are free from the dominion and power of sin in our lives, and he is alive forevermore, never to die again. We are free. Brothers and sisters, we are free. We are free. We will never again be under the control of sin because Jesus will never be under the control of sin. 
The power of sin has been broken over us because Christ was raised from the dead and we have been united to him in that resurrection. We literally cannot ever be slaves to sin like we were before we came to faith in Christ. Say it like a white girl. You literally can't. You literally cannot ever be a slave to sin ever again. We are objectively free in Christ. Be glad. We've been raised to newness of life. Never to die again. Ever. So now we come to Paul's conclusion about all of this. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us that in light of all that he has said so far, that there is something that we must embrace by faith. And what we must embrace by faith is that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And that word consider there, you must consider yourself dead to sin. That word in, in Greek is logizomai. It's fun to say. It's more fun to know what it means. It, means, it can be translated reckon, right? Like the King James Version has it. Or it's, it's really, it's an accounting term in Greek. It means to impute something to an account, to consider it, to credit it, like how God imputes, credits, considers, reckons the righteousness of Christ to our account by faith in the same way we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. What does that mean? We are to believe that this is true. It's a matter of faith. We are to believe this is true. If we are to grow in holiness, if we are to live a life of godliness, we must first embrace these truths by faith. Like, I get it. It sounds like it's too good to be true. You mean I'm dead to sin? Like, I don't have to sin anymore. I'm not a slave. Sounds too good to be true. But the whole gospel message sounds too good to be true. But nevertheless, it is true. We must believe that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Please hear me on this. If you don't believe that this is true, you will not make much progress in sanctification. You won't. And I say that because it is by faith that we kill our sin. Right? It is, it's not by some kind of mere white-knuckled obedience that we grow in holiness. No, it is by believing that God has set us free that we will then begin to live as free men. We must first believe. Then out of faith in what God has done, we will grow and conquer the remaining sin in our lives. That's why Paul says it's an imperative. We, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. You must. Again, let me illustrate this for you. You're getting two in a sermon. That's a lot for me. right? The holiday Juneteenth. It's a celebration of the day that the slaves in Texas found out that they were free. Now, listen, the slaves had been free for a while. They just didn't know it. And because they didn't know it, guess what? They continued to live like slaves. But on June 19, 1865, an announcement was given by a Union general in Galveston, Texas, that the slaves were indeed free and had been free. And from that day on... Those slaves knew that they were free and little by little began living like free men. On that day, there was a realization of, I don't have to do what my so-called master says anymore because he's not my master anymore. He's not my master. 
I don't have to work on this plantation. I can't be sold. I can't be forced to work for free. I'm not a slave anymore. I'm free. Brothers and sisters, we must consider ourselves free or we will never live in the fullness of the freedom from sin that Christ purchased for us. We must believe that we're free. That's why Paul says you must consider yourselves. You must believe this. And please hear me. You guys know I'm not a hippie. All right? This was a bit of a hard text for me to swallow this past week. This is not mind games that we're to play with ourselves. Right? And this is not the power of positive thinking. Right? I'll smack someone for that. This is not the power of positive thinking. This is a matter of living by faith in the Son of God who has set you free. And by faith, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Christian, we live by faith. We live by faith. We fight our sin by faith. We submit to God by faith. We do everything by faith in Christ. So we will grow in holiness only by faith that God has set us free from sin. Because our old self was crucified with Christ and we were resurrected to newness of life in Him. Believe that. Believe that, Christian. You must. Believe it. Now I know that I've got a few verses left. I know I've also been up here for like 45 minutes. You all have seen Braveheart and The Patriot multiple times. You'll be fine. Be quiet. Now I know I've got a few verses left, so I'm going to try to cover them quickly for the sake of time. But in light of the fact that we have been objectively set free from sin, Paul then and only then, notice that, only then does Paul begin to give us practical commandments to live a holy life. You can put it this way, if you want to sound like a nerd, it's good. The indicative of what God has done for us always comes before the imperative of what we are now to do. It's always in the Bible. Here's what God did for you. Now you do this as the natural response to what He did. It's always God's working first and then our working out of what God has done first. Don't get that twisted or you'll miss the whole text. So then Paul tells us, in light of the work of God to set us free, verses 12 and 13, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul is basically telling us here, Now go be what you are in Christ. Go. Here's what God did for you. Now go and be that. Go live like it. One commentator said, You've been set free from sin and made holy. Now go live like it. That's what Paul's saying here. Go live like a free man. Because you're free. But I want you to notice something. This is not... Uh, I think it was Higher Life was the name of the teaching in the 80s. Maybe some of you uh, have heard of that. This is not what I'm teaching. It's not what Paul's teaching. It's not let go and let God, right? God did this. Now just sit on your couch and change nothing about your life and just the holiness will just come. You'll just grow. No, that's not what Paul says. Notice here in verse 12, this is going to take effort. 
It's going to be a fight. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. I can summarize it like this. You are dead to sin, but sin is not dead. You're dead to sin, but sin is not dead. Sin is still very much alive, as long as you're alive. You've not yet been glorified. You're not under its dominion anymore, but it's still there. And Paul says here, by implication, sin is going to try to reign. And you are to not let it. But it's going to try. Sin will try to make you obey. It can't make you obey, but it's going to try to. Sin will lie. Sin will tempt. Sin will present itself as so enticing to you that you will be tempted to believe that you can't do anything but sin. But you can fight. And so you must. Because you're free. Sin is a liar. Do not submit. Wage the good warfare. Warfare. And this will take discipline, will it not? Let not sin reign. You're to do this. It's going to take discipline. From some, some of the things that I've read about slavery in this country, it took slaves a while to learn how to live like free people. We're going to have to learn how to live free. It's going to take discipline. This will require running from sin. It will require avoiding occasions to sin. It will require much prayer, asking God for grace to grow. It will require you making moves to change your lifestyle. You entered entered into a war with sin the moment you became a Christian. You now hate it, don't you? One of the clearest hallmarks that someone's a Christian is whenever they are sick of sinning. I've had people come to me and say, David, I wonder if I'm a Christian, man. I sin so much, I I, I just wish I didn't sin anymore. And it was, brother, you're a believer. Christians hate sin. That's why we're excited to die in one sense, because we won't sin anymore. You hate sin now, don't you? And now you're commanded to kill it wherever you find it in your life. And this takes effort. Again, God freed you, but it is now a struggle to live in that freedom. So we must be serious about living free. We must be diligent to avoid sin and refuse to submit to the temptation of sin. And so we do not give ourselves over to it. As Paul says, we do not present ourselves to sin, to obey it. We resist. And instead of presenting ourselves to sin, what do we do? We give ourselves over to God as those who have been brought from death to life. We daily renew our commitment to God. God has empowered us to live free. He set us free from the dominion of sin through Christ. So now each day we present ourselves as instruments, as tools for living the way that God commands us to. For living in the way that pleases the one who saved us and freed us. I want to drive this in. This is conscious daily work. This this is the area in theology that we now call progressive sanctification. Verses 1 through 11, that's definitive sanctification. This is objectively done and it's over with. You're free. And now we start progressive sanctification in verse 12. It's a slow, slow process. We grow little by little. This is where we kill sin, one sin at a time. I saw a meme once and said, sanctification is a long game of whack-a-mole. One after another, we get them one at a time. 
This is the fight. And we're in it now. By faith in what God has done, now we fight. But we fight with a promise, don't we? Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. This is a sermon by itself, so I'm going to be incredibly brief. Christian, sin will not have any dominion over you to make you obey it. You can fight it. You can kill the remaining sin in your life each day. And you can do so now. Why? Because you're under grace. You're under grace. You have been set free by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. You're a member of the new covenant, the covenant of grace. You're not under law. You're under grace. And by God's grace, you've been set free so that you can live a life of obedience and killing your sin that is pleasing to God. That is a promise. Sin will not have any dominion over you because of what God has done. I beg you, Christian, take the promise and believe it. Don't doubt. God has certainly done it. You are free. So fight like a free man. Because sin will never have control over you again. Because Christ has lived, died, and was raised. And you died and were raised with him. So now for application, let me just say two brief, and I do mean brief, things. First, Christian, this text tells you so many beautiful things that God has done for you. So here's what you're to do. Broadly speaking, you are to know it. You are to believe it. You are to reckon it to be true. You are to live in it and be what you are. You are to let not sin reign but rather you are to work and fight in faith in what God has done for you in Christ and believe the promise that sin will have no dominion over you. And second, I want to say this. As we end our career as Revolution Church, we need to remember some things. We have grown, yes. By God's grace, we have grown so much as individuals and as a congregation but we have not arrived. We have not arrived. Brothers and sisters, we are living in verses 12 and 13. Those, that's not done until we're dead. We're living in verses 12 and 13. We must continue to wage war against our sin. We must continue to grow into maturity in Christ. So brothers and sisters, do not be content with where you're at and do not be content with where this congregation is at. Strive for more holiness. Pray for it more and more. Pray for more reformation. Continue to stay in the word. Continue to encourage one another every day. Do not be content. Because the moment you become content, that is a sure recipe to regress from the progress that we've made in the faith. Do not be content. But as we continue on, we must continue to rest in the promise that God will grow us and sanctify us. He will continue to work in us by grace, so we will indeed continue to grow. And I'll leave you with this, a great promise. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Let me say that again. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word that tells us of our freedom. And we rejoice in what you have done. Thank you for letting us die and be raised in your Son. Thank you by putting your Spirit in us. Thank you for granting us the ability by your grace to fight sin. Thank you for what you've already objectively done. Help us to live like free men. Help us to live in what you've done and help us to kill sin and grow in holiness by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.